0: Welcome back to Rewildology, the show that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. The first month of 2023 is here and gone. It was a fantastic start to the year recapping important conservation events that happened at the end of 2022 and adding new topics never before discussed on the show. If you miss an episode and would like to hear a little snippet before diving into the full thing, check out these highlights to see if you might want to go back and listen to the full episode in its entirety. All right, here we go. First in January, I gave a full deep dive into the Big Cat Safety Act and three important conservation meetings from the end of 2022. Whoa, I don't know if you have been keeping up with environmental events, but 2022 ended with quite a freaking bang. We saw new laws passed, treaty signs, and agreements made at three important international conferences. So to kick off 2023, I wanted to share with you the key takeaways from the Big Cat Safety Act, COP19, COP15, and COP27, and how these decisions will impact the foreseeable future. First, let's discuss the Big Cat Safety Act. In case you haven't heard of the BitCat Safety Act or missed episode 65 with Sarika, this act was proposed by Representative Mike Quigley on January 11th, 2021, in response to Tiger King, the absolutely absurd Netflix series that brought to light the horrors of private BitCat ownership in the United States. The act's goal is to ban the private ownership of big cats and hybrids and make it illegal to offer public interactions with big cats, including cub petting, which is one of the main drivers of this industry. I know, I personally understand the desire to want and pet all over a cub, But most people that participate in close interactions with cubs don't realize that as soon as that little baby is deemed unusable for photo ops, it is usually sold off, kept in less than ideal conditions, or as proven on Tiger King, euthanized. Additionally, interacting with a deadly predator, I mean, come on, think about this, can have serious negative consequences. In a press release on Mike Quigley's website, Sarah Amundsen, I hope I pronounced that correctly, president of Humane Society Legislative Fund, shared that, quote, Since 1990, more than 400 incidents involving captive big cats have occurred in 46 states and the District of Columbia, five children and 19 adults have been killed and hundreds of others injured, some losing limbs or suffering other traumatic injuries, end quote. There is literally almost nothing good about the private big cat industry. And finally, the U.S. government has taken action to address this. On December 20th, 2022, the act was officially signed into law. Any person or facility that currently owns a big cat has 180 days to register their animal with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or face a $20,000 fine and up to five years in prison. Those are some pretty serious sentences if someone is found guilty of illegally owning a big cat. I'm curious to see what happens next and if anyone will actually be fined and or jailed for owning a big cat but at least now there is uniform law across the country that should, in theory, be enforced everywhere. Considering that there are more tigers in the state of Texas than in the wild, this is a massive victory for big cat conservation. I've been watching this act for a while now and I'm so relieved it's been passed. If you want to learn more about big cats in the U.S., then I recommend listening to episode 65 with Sarika, soon to be PhD, next after wrapping up this episode. Next, let's talk about COP19, COP15, and COP27. First, I want to differentiate between all of these freaking conferences. Even though they all have COP as their acronym, each is hosted by different organizations with very different goals and outcomes. If you already know about all of these conferences, then fast forward a minute or two. But just in case you were as confused as me about reading all of these conferences, then keep on listening. Okay, COP19, and that is capital C, lowercase o, capital P, 19, is the 19th meeting of the Conference of the Parties to CITES. And again, CITES is the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild, Fauna, and Flora, and is hosted every two to three years. The goal of this conference essentially is to review current and proposed trade regulations of plant and animal species and hopefully, get all parties on the same page. Next, we added sharks to the show, finally, and had a wonderful conversation with Camila Arnes, hammerhead and thresher shark researcher in the Galapagos. So I applied for this grant to study the ecology, feeding ecology of
1: the hammerhead sharks because this this wasn't done before in the Galapagos. It was a big knowledge gap in that area, especially not exactly what they were feeding off but how they were using the reserve like how they were foraging what strategies were they using what areas were they exploding and also like what their niche was so yeah i got this grant. i received this grant in 2019 i was super excited and as part of this we had to go to the northern part of the of the reserve and free dive among hammerhead sharks because That's they're super unbelievable they're, they're super shy if you go with the scuba gear they would go away because they don't like the bubbles so you had to be like like a ninja underwater using <laughs> <with> a <laughs> you see, you see the hawaiian sling that had a modified tip and it had a biopsy dart so you were you were free diamond with this hawaiian sling and then you would like throw the sling and puncture or like puncture the base of the dorsal fin but it was a tiny it was like a mosquito bite for them it didn't hurt and then we obtained like tiny samples of their muscle, and and then we took it to the lab so a lot of like feeding studies look at, at their at the species stomach content but because we're in a marine reserve and in a very protected area and also because I don't condone like invasive studies like I don't like killing animals for the sake of science there are other ways now especially with technology so there's no need to do that really we looked at the stable isotopes of the samples which are these elements of these very stable elements that you can study so everything's made out of isotopes as we are all made out of atoms and the isotopes are just another versions of the atoms they have different neutrons so you have lighter isotopes and heavier isotopes so, we we'll look at carbon and nitrogen isotopes that would tell us different things about the animals. So, like if we look at carbon isotopes, we would know if they were feeding in the coastal area or like how deep were they feeding or if they were using more oceanic areas. And then, if we look at the nitrogen isotopes, that will tell us how high or like their position on the trophic web and if they're feeding down the food web or up the food web. So that gave us a lot of information and there was another layer to the study. So we did this for four years. It was a four-year study. And during that four-year period, an El Niño happened and also La Niña. So we could see how their strategies and their feeding behavior shifts with climatic events and the climatic variability. So that was an awesome thing to learn and understand. So I had a lot of fun doing this study.
0: Third in January, we sat down with Christian Shaw, founder and executive director of Plastic Tides.
2: And so then we came back from that trip and we're like, wow, we've really got something here. We've got, you know, all these sponsors working with Cliff Bar and Goal Zero and Backpackers Pantry. And we've got all this support on Bermuda and everything. And, and, and actually learned about the microbead issue from cosmetics and the work that mm. Five Gyres had done on the Great Lakes and I'm from Ithaca, New York. And so we basically, you know, took this trawl and kind of to connect the dots, you know, that first trip, we were kind of just testing it out, we took some samples, but we didn't really do anything with the data of any significance. And then we went out and we actually took the trawl, we improved it. And then We learned about these microbeads and and we're like, okay, well, you know, I live on Cuga Lake and the Finger Lakes and it connects to the Erie Canal system and these microbeads have got to be in this water too. And so we started sampling and actually started to see evidence of the microbeads and then organized an expedition to paddle from Ithaca to Albany, the capital, and sample along the way. And basically carry the message about, you know, clean water and and essentially how flagrant this pollution was where there's a product that it was designed to be flushed down your drain. And so, mm. and, and, and these treatment plants aren't equipped to filter that stuff out. And so it was just kind of intuitive that they would be ending up in the waterways. And so. You know, of course, we went out to basically prove that, and we were able to do so. We took a dozen samples from Kuga Lake all the way through the Erie Canal, um, Oneida Lake, the Mohawk River, and then we worked with the Great Lakes Plastic Pollution Research Lab out of SUNY Fredonia and Dr. Sam Mason and spent a week up in their lab analyzing the samples and put together uh, our findings, basically, for the first time, proving definitively the existence of these microbeads in inland waterways.
0: Lastly, in January, I introduced us to the promising new field of agrivoltaics and what it could mean for the future of food production and renewable energy. Enter today's topic and a potential solution to all of the issues I just mentioned and so much more. Agrivoltaics. Instead of competing for acreage, agrivoltaics brings together two land-intensive fields, agriculture and photovoltaics, essentially marrying food production and renewable energy to solve all of the issues I just explained in detail. So how exactly does agrivoltaics do this? An increasing amount of research is being conducted around the globe exploring the productivity of shade-tolerant plants grown underneath solar panels, and the results are super promising. It turns out solar panels do not like to get hot, ironically, and the transpiration from plants growing underneath cools the panels down significantly, thereby increasing their efficiency. Also, plants can only absorb so much sunlight, And if they're exposed to too much sun, then they're likely to shrivel and die from too much heat and water loss. Strategically installing panels over top of the plants helps buffer heat stress by protecting plants from the midday sun and by trapping water in the soil beneath. It gets better. I read about and watched at least four separate studies that each found significant increases in crop productivity on fields with agrovoltaics versus control fields that were managed under standard agricultural practices. And the same for energy output for solar panels that were coupled with crops. Amazing, it gets even better. Since the crop yields were higher and the solar panels produced more energy, the overall economic value of farms with agrovoltaics was significantly higher than agricultural fields or solar fields alone. So, according to the studies published thus far, crops and solar panels are a match made in heaven. Technology in the field is also progressing. Agrivoltaics companies like Sun Agri have been developing AI algorithms that tilt and rotate solar panels above crops to maintain Goldilocks conditions for both the crops underneath and for sun absorption above. Transparent solar panels have also been developed to help with light control and can even be shaped similarly to a greenhouse. Oregon State University calculated that if 1% of the U.S.'s agricultural lands were converted to agrivoltaics, then we'd meet our yearly renewable energy targets. Countries all over the world are also seeing the potential of agrivoltaics and combined thousands of projects have been installed in China, Japan, and South Korea. Furthermore, experiments are being conducted in Italy with climate-sensitive grapevines, the crop responsible for our beloved wine. Lord knows we can't give up our wine. And agrovoltaics might help ensure that we don't lose grapevines to climate change. But you're probably wondering, what's the catch? And that is it, a snapshot of January's wide-ranging episodes. As always, we wanna thank you for being a part of the Rewatology community. If you have any questions about January's episodes, head on over to the Rewatologist Facebook group and submit your question on the homepage. If you'd like to support the show in other creative ways, there are several options to do so. Some zero-cost ways include subscribing to the podcast on your favorite streaming app, leaving a rating and review to boost the algorithm, which will present the podcast to more listeners, signing up for the weekly Rewatology newsletter at the website, subscribing to the YouTube channel, and following the show on your favorite social media app. If you'd like to financially support the show and help us keep these stories on the airwaves, consider making a monetary donation at rewadology.com or purchase a piece of swag to show off your rewadology love. At least 10% of proceeds from this show will be donated to our conservation partners. I'd also like to extend a special thanks to Heather Valley, the show's audio and video producer, and Focusrite for powering the podcast sound. If you'd like to see the Focusrite gear we use to record the show, head on over to rewild and check out Nature Podcasting under the Resources tab. Until next time, friends, together we'll rewild the planet.